So tonight we're starting a new study. I'm going to title this study, The Lion Roars. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And we're going to be in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to take it verse by verse from beginning to end, but we're going to do a, a study from the Gospel of John. And Jesus is the lion that roars, and the Apostle John roars about Jesus and who he is and keeps driving home the point that the lion is Jesus, he's the lion of Judah, and he is God. He's the son of God. Different sports will talk about, uh, they use this term goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Who's the greatest of all time? So my oldest son sent me a, a clip last night of Barry Sanders. That guy was a magician. And there, there are debates about the greatest of all time, whether football, basketball, whatever, baseball. Sanders was incredible. And it reminded me, I did a book 30 years ago called Point Man. And somehow it got out there and every NFL team has a chaplain. And those cha chaplains talk to each other and somehow one of those NFL chaplains read it and told some other guys. And, so, and then they found out I lived in Dallas and I started getting calls because, you know, every NFL team has a chapel service, either the Saturday night before a game or right before breakfast on Sunday morning. I mean, every team. And I started getting calls from the visiting team's chaplains. And so I would do two or three every year. I, I didn't do the Cowboys. I never got a call from the Cowboys. And, which was fine because we were from California, the Bay Area. There's a team there called the 49ers. They had a quarterback named Joe Montana. They had a guy named Jerry Rice. They had Roger Craig. They had Dwight Clark and the catch, <laughs> the catch. I know this is hard for some of you guys. This is called church history. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, it was fun. And I would, so I'd, I'd take my boys, and we'd go and do chapel. And it, it got to be kind of funny. I realized this three or four or five years into it. Uh, I don't know, I must have done eight or nine or ten of them and I realized one day, every time I've done a chapel for the visiting team, they beat, they beat the Cowboys. <laughs> and I had a friend named Ken Rutgers who was a left tackle for the Packers. Uh, and he protected Favre and, I mean, this is back in the 90s. 
and a great guy, solid believer, and anyway, we were talking one time, and I just said, hey, Ken, you want to hear something funny? And I told him that. And the Packers had not been in playoff game for a long, long time, and they got in, and I get this call from Ken. He goes, hey, Steve, what are you doing on December, whatever it was? And I said, I don't know. And he said, we're coming down to play Dallas. Can you do the chapel service? <laughs> and I said, Ken, hey, I don't know, but you, you, now you know that. He said, yeah, but I, yeah, I know, but can you do it? And uh, it was funny. So my boys went with me and met all these guys. I did a chapel for the Detroit Lions. Maybe the third or fourth time I did one. And uh, there were a lot of guys in there. Coaches, it's one of the bigger chapels that I did in terms of attendance. And my boys were kind of disappointed because Barry Sanders wasn't there. But after the chapel and we're walking out in this hotel, it, it, there's people everywhere in the lobby. I mean, hundreds of people trying to get autographs. And they're looking for Sanders. And we were in a side room and I looked down the hall and there was Barry Sanders. And for some reason, he was dashing out of his room and running down to another. He must have forgot something. And, he's, and then people started seeing him. And, and they started running towards him. And he made a run <laughs> that's as good as anything I've ever seen on NFL highlights. If he had a stopped, he never would have gotten out of there. Those, those were some fun times has absolutely nothing to do with our Bible study, but <laughs> it, it took me down memory lane. Actually, the point, you could argue he may be the greatest of all time running back, maybe Jim Brown, maybe Gail Sayers, maybe Eric Dickerson. I mean, you'd go Emmett. I mean, who knows? When it comes to Jesus, he's the greatest. Carnegie Simpson once, once wrote, of Jesus Christ, instinctively we do not class him with others. When one reads his name in a list beginning with Confucius and ending with Goethe, we feel it is an offense less against orthodoxy than against decency. Jesus is not one of the group of the world's great. Talk about Alexander the Great, Charles the Great, Napoleon. If you will, Jesus is a part. He is not the great. He is the only. He is simply Jesus. Nothing could add to that. He is beyond our analysis. He confounds our ideas of human nature. He compels our criticism to overleap itself. He awes our spirits. There is a saying of Charles Lamb that if Shakespeare was to come into this room, we should all rise up to meet him. But if the Lord Jesus was to come in, we would fall down and try to kiss the hem of his garment because he's God. He's the God man. In 1971, that was my uh, senior year of college. I'd been in college for 12 years. <laughs> and actually, I got out in five. But I was a speech major in college because it seemed to be the only thing I could get higher than a C in. And I was a speech major, and they had a great speech department. 
It was my last semester and I had one course left. It was senior persuasive speaking. Only speech majors were in the class. And you had taken all of the other requirements and all of the other electives, and uh, only 10 or 12 in the class. I was nervous about the class. I'd had the prof before. He was a tremendous professor. He knew his stuff. He was just spot on. And he was there to make you better. Now, he was fair, but he was tough. Those are the best professors. They expect something out of you. And they call you to rise a little higher. He was that kind of prof. The last speech determined, as I recall, two-thirds of your grade. And you had to nail it. You had 10 minutes to do a persuasive speech, and this is how it worked. You'd get up to give your speech. Everyone, every student had a critique sheet, and on the top there was a graph that went from minus 10 to zero all the way up to plus 10. The first thing you would do is you would walk up and write your premise on the board. And then, without saying anything, they would look at the premise and they would write or circle the number which indicated their agreement or disagreement with your premise. And then, after the speech, there was another graph on the bottom, and they would indicate where they were after you gave your persuasive speech. And then, each paper would be turned in, and the numbers would be calculated to see if you moved anyone, if you persuaded anyone. I got up and wrote on the board to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then I turned around, this was 1971, and um, we'd had the tax squad on campus, we'd had sit-ins, it was, um, you know, it was just the 60s and the upheaval and all that stuff. And for a while we couldn't get into the classrooms because the administration didn't want to take on the student. You know, it was nuts. So let me say this, as I turned around, I didn't sense a great amount of empathy. I didn't sense a great amount of head nodding. I didn't sense hardly any. But I dove into my speech. Actually, it uh, wasn't my speech. I'd been raised in church heard the gospel all my life. I was a Christian. But then, as you get older, you begin to critique the church, and you begin to critique the weird people in the church. But at some point, you got to start thinking for yourself. And the things you've been taught, you got to figure out, is this stuff true? And there was no internet back then. You actually had to read a book. You actually had to uh, dive in. So I read a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity, M-E-R-E. -E. Lewis, one of the great Christian apologists, philosophers, writers, was an atheist for years and years and years.
But he had some friends, one of them being J.R.R. Tolkien and some others, and they met every week, and they would critique one another's writings. And uh, Lewis came to know the Lord. That book, Mere Christianity, absolutely blew me out of the water. When I was a speech major, I had to take several classes in rhetoric. Rhetoric. You learn how to put an argument together. It just makes sense. It just rings true. Unless there's a faulty premise. The logic in mere Christianity astounded me. He didn't start with Christ. He didn't start with the Bible. He started with the fact that everyone has a sense of right and wrong. That's how he started. And then he built from there. I read another book by John Scott called Basic Christianity. And the 10-minute speech that I gave, I pulled right out of John Scott's book, Basic Christianity. And I used his three-point outline on Jesus, premise to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. By number one, examining what Christ himself thought. And then I just kind of worked down what Stott said. Who did Jesus think that he was? Who did Jesus say that he was? I remembered being in a hotel and was in a coffee shop with some friends. And a guy walked up to us. And he was, you could tell something was off. Something was wrong. And... We kind of looked at him, and he, he said, excuse me for interrupting, but I want to introduce myself. I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for some reason, none of us believed him. <laughs> and he, he, he was there a couple minutes, and then finally he went to another table, and they had to have him removed. Now, in the scriptures, Jesus said he was the Son of God. But you see, there was a difference between the character of Jesus in the Scriptures and the guy in the coffee shop. The guy in the coffee shop, it didn't add up. It didn't make any sense. There was no congruency. But Jesus... It added up. And he declared unashamedly, I am the Son of God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He was the Son of God. And in that culture, to say that you're the Son of God was to say you're God. To say you're the Son of means you're of the same. At one point, the, the Pharisees we're upset with him and accusing him of an illegitimate birth and, you know. They talked about that they were sons of Abraham or other places, were of Moses, sons of Moses, perhaps. That meant, yeah, we're in with, we're in with them. 
And, and Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That was, that was, he called himself God. And in John, there are seven I am's statements that we'll look at in this study later. What Christ, so, so my first point was what Christ thought himself to be. Secondly, what Christ's friends said about him. Peter, who do men say that I am? Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the living Son of God. And they've been with him. Peter's been with him for three years. You know, sometimes we put people on a pedestal. But I will tell you this. I don't care who they are. You spend 24 hours with them. You spend 12 hours with them, and you're going to see cracks. Because we're all flawed, and because we're all sinners. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Not ever did they seem sin because he was without sin. That's what his friends thought him to be. And then the third outline point that I use from John Stott, what Christ's enemies conceded, what his enemies thought about him. And again, he just used Scripture. The centurion at the foot of the cross said, truly he was the Son of God. Pilate's wife wrote a note, had a dream, said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She was a pagan. That was pretty much the speech. So I sat down, and um, it was quiet. They take about 10 minutes, and they're calculating the scores, and the prof is back there writing, just, you know, and you're sitting, you're sweating, you know. I, I hope, man, I hope I passed. I hope I graduate. I hope I have a life. I don't want to take this in summer school. I even debated whether to tell this, but I'm going to tell it. But you understand what I'm going to say has nothing to do with me. Nothing. He said, Steve, we added up the score from where people were to where they are you have this highest score we've had. That wasn't about me. That was about the Word of God. At the bottom, he wrote and then underlined exclamation points. Your logic was impeccable. <laughs> it wasn't my logic. It was the truth of the Word of God. And John Stott mined it. He pulled it out, and I just reported it. That's the power of the Word of God. I graduated, moved back home up to the Bay Area. I was driving a truck to save money because I was going to go to seminary. And I was going to Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. I met a guy named Eric Sigward. Eric grew up in New York City, uh, not a Christian pagan home, no church, no nothing. Eric was one of those guys, absolutely brilliant. Full academic scholarship to Harvard. Full academic scholarship 
to Oxford. Great athlete. Was uh, in the Harvard crew. You know, he didn't have a rowing machine. I mean, he really did it. And uh, he was world class, then went to Oxford and rode for Oxford, and then came to Stanford for a PhD program. And didn't know the Lord. By the way, what happened to Eric was it was the 60s, and as everyone was doing, no big deal. He could ace test. He could stay up all night and party and go take the SAT and get a perfect score. It was no big deal. Uh, he wasn't that challenged in school. I mean, the guy was just brilliant. So he started smoking dope. And he started doing it every day. And then he went from that to something else. And uh, then he went to something else. And then he was doing LSD pretty much every day. And what happened when he showed up at Stanford, he was actually li living in some Greek islands in the summer. And some of you guys remember the Life magazine uh, pictures of hippies all over the world. Eric was in there on one of the Greek islands just living in a cave, dropping acid before he came to Stanford. When he got to Stanford, he was in trouble because he could hardly, it burned his mind so badly he could hardly put a logical thought together with the second one. And he's a little desperate and he's a little scared for the first time in his life and he's going to coach the crew at Stanford while he's doing this PhD program. And he's trying to get himself back in shape so he's running laps around the Stanford track and doing wind sprints, and he's hoping, you know, I'll get my body going, I'll get my mind going. And uh, he, he told me this later, he said, I, I'd really had a hard workout, I sat down on a bench. And it was an open area, and families could play ball out there, you know, they had several tracks at Stanford anyway. He, uh, he's sitting on a bench, just drinking some water, and the family was throwing a ball, and the little girl missed the ball, and she ran to get the ball. And she was about 10 yards away from Eric. She was five years old, six years old. She picks up the ball. She looks at Eric, and she said, you need to know Jesus. She turned around and walked off. And it was like she slapped him in the face. And, and he believed her. And there were some guys in the dorm that were from Peninsula Bible Church doing a Bible study, so he showed up. And he, knew, he didn't know the first thing about the Bible. And somebody gave him this book by this C.S. Lewis guy called Mere Christianity. And he told me later, as I opened up that book, I could feel my mind begin to heal because of the logic and I didn't realize it at the time because of the biblical truth. And then he began to read the Bible. And he said, Steve, God healed my mind through Scripture. You don't have to throw away your mind to follow Jesus. In fact, you've got to engage your mind. 
Are, are there some mindless Christians? Yeah. And somehow they all seem to get on Christian television. <laughs> I mean, not all of them, but I mean, my gosh, where do these people come from? The stuff they say, I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, sit down. Harry Blameyers wrote a book. You guys still with me? I'm going to get to John. We're on our way to John. We'll get there about 11.30, I think, at this rate. We're getting close. Harry Blameyers in uh, 1963 wrote a book called The Christian Mind, How a Christian Should Think. He wrote this. A prime mark of the Christian mind is that it cultivates the eternal perspective. That is to say, it looks beyond this life to another one. It is supernaturally orientated and brings to bear upon earthly considerations the fact of heaven and the fact of hell. The Christian mind, and by the way, we're losing this in the evangelical church, just to let you know. Christian churches, if you read their doctrinal statement, many of them are punting on what Jesus said about heaven and hell. He goes on and says, the Christian mind sees human life and human history held in the hands of God. It sees the whole universe, the whole universe sustained by his power and his love. It sees the natural order as dependent upon the supernatural order time as contained within eternity. It sees this life as an inconclusive experience, preparing us for another, this world as a temporary place of refuge, not our true and final home. But outside the sphere of Christian thinking, there is a totally different view of things. Modern secular thought ignores the reality beyond this world. So secularists today Secular education, secular business people, secular governments. If someone's a secularist, a secularist, they believe, get this, they believe this is the only world that there is. That's why they'll do anything to get what they want in this world, including, including run over you, including uh, make a promise and then abandon you and not think twice about it and actually justify what they did. See, this stuff has real life implications. If you think this is the only world that there is, you're gonna live a certain way. Outside the sphere of Christian thinking, there is a totally different view of things. Modern secular thought ignores the reality beyond this world. It treats this world as the thing. Secularism, by its very nature, rooted in this world, accounting it the only sure basis of knowledge, the only reliable source of meaning and value. Secularism puts its trust in this life and makes earthly happiness and well-being its primary concern. Hence, the collision between the Christian faith and contemporary secular culture. For all teaching of Christian revelation deals, catch this, for all teaching of Christian revelation... This is revelation. This is God's revelation to us. Okay? He's talking about the Bible. Hence the collision between 
the Christian faith and contemporary secular culture. For all teaching of Christian revelation deals with the breaking in of the greater supernatural order upon our more limited, finite world. That conception is at the heart of the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus, who was God, became man. Jesus is the God-man. The greater breaks in upon the smaller. But if our world here is seen as the totality of things or even as the dominant sphere of existence, then the notion of the greater breaking in upon it cannot be entertained. Couple more. The Christian faith is important because it's true. To think Christianly is to think in terms of revelation of what God has revealed. For the secularist, God and theology, catch this, are the playthings of the mind. For the Christian, God is real, and, the Christian, and Christian theology describes his truth revealed to us. For the secular mind, religion is essentially a matter of theory. Catch this, if you don't get anything else. For the Christian, Christianity is a matter of acts and facts. The acts and facts, which are the basis of our faith, are recorded in the Bible. The Christian mind is inescapably and unbrokenly conscious of the hard, factual quality of the Christian faith. The Christian mind is alert to the solid, God-given, authoritative factualness of the Christian faith. Christianity has been called the most materialistic religion in history. That is an illuminating point, for Christianity is so much more than a mere moral code, a recipe for virtue, a system of comfortable, idealistic thought. It is a religion of acts and facts. Its God is not an abstraction, but a person with a right arm and a voice. If its God has moved among us, this is a persistent biblical theme. A baby born in Bethlehem, a body nailed to a cross. Those are acts. Those are facts. The, mo the popular modern unwillingness to reckon with the authoritative God-given nature of the Christian faith is bred of the anti-supernaturalist bias which dominates contemporary thinking and is indeed native and natural to secularism. Remember, he wrote this in 63. It's also nourished by the popular misconception of the nature of truth. Our culture is bedeviled by the it's all a matter of opinion code, so you get a group of experts that, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? He says this. So, you know, let's take the opinions and mix them up and see what we come up with. He says, you cannot construct truth from a mass of dissonant and disparate material. You cannot construct truth at all. You can only discover it. There you go. Now, that's written by a man with a Christian mind. That's logic. What we see right now is morally and spiritually insane. Isaiah 5, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Let's go to John 1. 
I have a question for you. So how many Gospels are there? Is this the only Gospel? John, Gospel according to John? No, you know there's three others. There is um, Matthew, there is Mark, there is Luke, John. I actually almost read John 1.1. I almost did it. But I caught myself in time. Because just a little bit more background, and again, this is introduction. This is setting up the whole study, okay? And I'm watching the clock. The Bible can be, um, it's a big book, and it can be a little bit intimidating. Ray Stedman, I mentioned Eric Sigward and I. Um, from the time I was a senior in high school, I went to Peninsula Bible Church. Eric, when he came to Stanford, he went to Peninsula Bible Church. Chuck Swindoll interned at Peninsula Bible Church when he was a student at Dallas Seminary. Luis Palau interned with him. Just two young rookie guys under a pastor by the name of Ray Stedman. Um, Ray was very unique. He was a Montana cowboy. His father abandoned him when he was three. He and his brother lived in orphanages. He um, found the Lord later in life. He had a hard upbringing. Found the Lord just before World War II. Served, and when he got out, he went to Dallas Theological Seminary because he had heard some guys teach the Bible, and they really taught the Bible, and he wanted to teach the Bible. So he and his wife came to Dallas Seminary. His best friend became a man named Howard Hendricks. They were friends their entire lives. Ray was pastor at Peninsula Bible Church. Ray um, was a great expositor of Scripture. You can get his stuff online. There's a book compiled of all of Ray's research on the Scripture called Adventuring Through the Bible. It's a comprehensive guide to the entire Bible. And if you're interested in a book of the Bible, and there are other, there are other books like this out there that are excellent. I just really like this one. So I'm going to read Ray. And then we're going to get in John 1, 1. You say, you're reading a lot of stuff. Yeah, because there's guys around a lot smarter than I am. Okay? Ray asked this. We encounter this man, Jesus Christ, through four separate portraits. Portraits. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many have asked, why is it necessary to have four Gospels instead of just one? Why couldn't one of these writers have gotten all the facts together and presented them for us in one book? Well, that would be like trying to use one photograph of a building to adequately represent the entire structure. One picture could not possibly show all four sides of the building at once. The same is true of Jesus. His character, his ministry are so rich and multifaceted that a single view could not tell the whole story. God deliberately planned for four gospels so that each could present our Lord in a unique way. Each gospel presents a distinct aspect of Christ and our understanding of who he truly is would be incalculably poor if even one of these Gospels was lost to us. And he goes on and talks about there are different prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, but the Old Testament is about Jesus. There are symbols, there are types, there are metaphors, but Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, but he is never named in the Old Testament. 
He's the Messiah. He's the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. But he's everywhere. Uh, there are all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll find prophecies in Isaiah that he would be the king. And the Jews knew this, and they were expecting a king to come and conquer Rome. But Jesus didn't do that, and it kind of baffled them because he didn't look like the king they were expecting. So the Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus being king and clarifies his kingdom. All right? It deals with those Old Testament prophecies. You had prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be the suffering servant. And this really confused the Jews because how could a king be a servant? Kings weren't servants. But once again, there's another gospel that explains that. It's the gospel of Mark. In Mark, the emphasis is on Jesus, the suffering servant. The other thing that baffled them was there are frequent Old Testament pictures of Jesus coming as a man. He was to be born of a virgin, grow up in Bethlehem, walk among human beings. He was the perfect human being. That is the image presented to us in the Gospel of Luke. Finally, those Old Testament pictures would speak of the Messiah as God, the everlasting one. That's the Gospel of John. He is God. Matthew and Luke have genealogies. You say, yeah, I'm looking here at John 1, 1. There's no genealogy. Actually, there is. But it's very short. And it's in the first verse. You see this genealogy? In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. Well, how do you know it's Jesus? We'll go down to verse 14. And the Word, who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, the Apostle John says. We were with him for three years. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. That's what John is all about. Uh, and Jesus roared that he was God. And the religious leaders of Israel hated him for it. They, I, I mentioned last Sunday that there is a, uh, there's a, a gentleness, there's a kindness, there's a tenderness in Christ. When you're at your low, your lowest, when you're busted up, when you're in the street vomiting because you tried to forget your troubles with the booze or you're in jail or you're eating with the pigs as the prodigal was, He's near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He'll never turn anyone away, ever. 
And sometimes we know the truth, but we keep running from the truth, and we're going 150 miles away from him, and in his mercy, he'll let us eventually hit a wall and shock us and stun us, and uh, he'll break into our lives and he'll break up our lives in order to save us because there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. He's a great God. He, he loves you. He loves me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God if we're in Christ. So there's a great compassion about the Lord Jesus. Some Christians, they love the compassionate, tender, gentle Jesus, and we thank God for that. But that's not all he was. He was a confronter. He was the Lion of Judah. And as one Canadian pastor who was jailed in past months and a fence put around his church, and now his church in Canada meets underground. Can you believe there are underground churches in Canada because of persecution? Oh, just look up Pastor James Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. You'll get the whole story. But they had him in solitary like he was some kind of hardened felon, you know, just preaching the gospel. And then he got out. And at one point, someone asked him about what was going on. And he said, well, you know, he's praying for those people and they need the Lord. He said, you know, they don't realize, they think they're going up against me or my church. They're going toe-to-toe with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to go toe-to-toe with the lion. It doesn't tend to end well. What you've got here in John 1.1, and, and let's just peruse it, and then we'll wrap it up. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is not a created being, as some religions teach. The Mormon church, we have some neighbors, they're wonderful people, they love their families, they're good citizens. But they've been taught that Jesus is a creative being. Jesus is an angel. Jesus is not an angel. Read Hebrews 1. He's superior to the angels. Jesus is God. Jehovah's Witness mistrans- Witnesses, they mistranslate John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was a God. No. No. Watch this. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. He's the creator God. He's the creator. He knows those stars by name. He owns them. He runs them. He controls them. He controls the nations. Man, Steve, it seems like things are, and things are out of control. Yeah. He whistles like you whistle to a dog. Here, boy. Here comes Red China. Here comes North Korea. I don't see that. Yeah, it looks looks to me like things are out of control. They're not out of control, they're under control. His throne is in the heavens. Earth is his footstool. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. He raises up nations, he sets them down. He's got a plan for the ages. It's on schedule. 
We're not, we're not on the upswing, upswing, we're on the downswing. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan for his people. He does. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your sovereign defender. He's your keeper. He's your provider. You're good. But he's the creator. In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So there came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light, who was Jesus. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Watch this, 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. They were with him day and night for three years. And as Ray Stedman says at some point, he said, I've often thought about the disciples, and they're growing, they understand he's God. And after a hard day of ministry, they're sleeping outside, as would be the norm. And undoubtedly, at some point, John couldn't go to sleep, and he's sneaking peeks over there at Jesus. And then he's looking at the stars. He made those. He made those. Why, why would he believe that? He'd just seen him calm the Sea of Galilee. They thought they were going to die. And what does Jesus do? He's asleep in the boat. You ever feel like Jesus is asleep and you're dying? And you don't see any way out? That's exactly where they were. And what happened? They'd never, these guys had been on that sea constantly. Peter, every day of his adult life. But they'd never seen a storm. They never thought waves like, they thought they were going down. They thought it was over. They wake up the Lord. Lord, 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 don't you care that we are perishing? Well, they were panicked. When you're panicked, you're not thinking straight. When all you do is take in deception, you're going to panic at some point. You're not going to be able to hold it together unless you're, you've got a foundation in the Word of God that'll stabilize you and steady you and remind you every morning you open that Bible. It's like going to the chiropractor. And you get up in the morning, and you're a little worried, you're a little anxious, you had trouble going to sleep, but you open that Bible, and you start reading the Word of God, and it's like a chiropractor going, <coughs> oh, whew, good. And all of a sudden, your perspective changes because you're dealing with truth instead of lies. It's the power of the Word of God. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us sane, you see? So we don't have to fear, we don't have to be worried, we don't have to be panicked. Lord, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Now, if they were in their right minds and not panicking, did, what would they say? Of course he cares, of course he cares. Look what he's done for us. Of course he cares, but when you're panicked, you're not thinking straight. So what does Jesus do? They wake him up. And he speaks to the storm, the waves, and it's instantaneously calm and quiet. And those guys look around and 
Now, who are they afraid of? They're afraid of him because he's God. Oh, and then he looks at them and says, where is your faith? Oh, gosh, I guess I left it on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee when you were doing all those miracles. I went to college in Southern California. Great weather, not too far from the beach. Played a lot of ball. Had a great time. Didn't learn much, but I had a great time. It's a great place to go to school. I remember being in class, had an early class, 11 o'clock class. Had to get up early, be there at 11. Been up most of the night messing around. And I'm just looking outside, wishing I was outside, and you know, just waiting for the guy to come in. And he walks in and he says, I want you to take uh, your textbook, put it away, take out a paper, pencil. I thought, oh gosh, we're going to have a pop quiz. Gosh. I remember praying, Lord, bring to my mind things I've never read. Help me, Jesus, here. I, I mean, you know, I didn't even buy the book. <laughs> there are times in the Christian life, it's, I, I have a theory, my theory is this. Count it all joy, James says, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. My theory is, in the Christian life, every test is a pop quiz. The problem with the pop quiz is it's unexpected, it's unannounced, and it's terribly inconvenient. And that's the Christian life. I thought my job was secure. I thought my wife's health was good. She just tested negative. I thought, I thought, and suddenly you're in the storm and you're panicked. And you're scared. It's like the Lord says, yeah, you, you, know, you get your Bible, you got all your study notes, it's great. I'm glad you're in my word. Now let's have a pop quiz. He wants to see where our faith is. Are you going to trust me? Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I've referred to this many times in the past in this Bible study, as he was commenting on that section of Scripture, he said, may I offer you a definition of faith? He said, I believe that in so many instances in the Christian life, faith is a refusal to panic. It's a refusal. Because Jesus is my God. Jesus is my Savior. I belong to him. His faithfulness reaches to the sky. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you with my mighty right hand.
We're living in unsettling times. But Jesus is real, and he is available. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Guys are facing different things in here. Everyone looks on the surface. Everybody looks good. Everybody looks normal. Everyone looks together. Most of us aren't. We're so thankful that Jesus is God. We're so thankful that he is the creator. And we're so grateful that he holds all things together. He holds our lives together. Even when our lives are falling apart, you're up to something. Even when we have loss in our lives and we grieve over the loss, you've got something in mind for us because you're the God who promises in Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that all things, all things, the good and the bad, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In your way, in your time, you will bring good. We don't know how, we don't know when, we don't speculate, we just trust you. As we walk out of here tonight, encourage us with these words. Help us to go to sleep, pondering, <coughs> who you are, that you're God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.